the largest bank in the world by assets is the ICBC, one of the four major banks in China. Its total assets are about $4 trillion. China's total exposure in Africa, we're talking about one Chinese bank here, China's total exposure in terms of debt to Africa is around $100 billion. Welcome to another episode from the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz, and today we are joined by a special guest. I think this episode has been a long time coming. Uh, we, we first connected in D.C., I think, when he first came for his current fellowship. So he's uh, Jude Moore. He's a, currently a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development and the former Minister of Public Works for Liberia. Uh, we're going to have a good conversation today about the the potential for tech-enabled business in Africa, but also the limitations and uh, really the broader what's needed for investment categories on the continent. But Judy, thank you so much for joining us. Andrew, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Like you said, this is uh, long overdue and uh, happy to be here today. So your your trip to D.C. to kind of start your fellowship, was that was that your first time in D.C. or had you been no, here before? No, no. I, uh, I did undergrad here in the U.S., but in Kentucky. Then uh, graduate school, I went to Georgetown University. So, and then as a member of the government of Liberia, both as a deputy chief of staff to the president and then as a minister of public works, I uh, came back to DC a lot for government functions. So DC is like, uh, my town. Second home. Yeah. 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 Well, so how often do you go back to Liberia? Um, I was just there in uh, November last year and then I was there in July I was there in June so I try to go like four times a year uh, more if possible but about four times a year yeah okay and so t- I mean tell us I guess let's start this off just hearing a little bit about your work at the Center for Global Development right, and right. you know what's um what, what what's shaping your your thoughts and opinions absolutely nowadays? well so the Center for Global Development uh, CGD does uh, high-quality research on international development. The intent is to improve the quality of international development. So the initial audience of the Center for Global Development's work was uh, the governments of rich countries that gave to international development and the IFIs. Uh, increasingly, uh, some of CGD work now has begun to engage uh, governments in places where the work is implemented, most, most of that in Africa. So at the Center for Global Development, there are two, uh, two groups of us there. They're um, uh, pure academics, uh, people who are doing that, and then they have uh, practitioners, people who have actually practiced right. <laughs> what has been studied, and then some of us um, there have done both. So it's an excellent mix, uh, mix and uh, most of my work is focused on finance and infrastructure in Africa because I'm just convinced and Economic evidence shows that it's sort of really, really difficult to be able to build a thriving, sustainable economy without something of an infrastructure backbone, be it a road system or power source, power supply. So I focus on that. And since it's almost impossible to talk about finance and infrastructure in Africa without talking about China, I end up talking about Africa's response to the presence of external actors in the financing space for for infrastructure. And China is a prominent external actor on the continent. So I do mostly, I'm not a China expert, so I simply talk from the perspective of African governments, their response to to China. And then quite recently, uh, um, my uh, very good friend and colleague, Aubrey Ruby and I uh, launched a podcast, New Think, and the idea is to be able to discuss uh, ideas that may not find a hearing elsewhere or ideas that deserve being brought to the front but for some reason have, um, haven't. 
and and giving people an opportunity. And these ideas are supposedly radical and with the potential for a significant large scale impact on the continent. So that's that's what I'm doing. Awesome. Well, I definitely want to dive into what's what's going on with China and your thoughts there. But I want to start this off really talking about something that comes up on the show a lot, mainly within an African context mm-hmm. that, you know, even though we tend to focus on startups and tech enabled business around the world, but in a lot of countries, that ecosystem exists next to other needs that we're not that privy to here, you know, in the West or e- even in China now. And it's, it's the needs of, of infrastructure and problems that as entrepreneurs, like you can help innovate in that space, but you can't necessarily solve those problems. There has to be a top down approach. Hmm. And so when we think about this world of like, like for example, with e-commerce, you can't have an e-commerce ecosystem without roads. Like that's like the first step to the ecosystem. And so, you know, I would love to just kind of kick this off with just hearing from you. Like that world is probably foreign to most people, the infrastructure financing. And so like, what's the dynamic? Who are the players in, in that space that make things happen? Part of the thing is in, in a, in, in a country like here, things like infrastructure, like roads, power, these are public goods and they have to be provided by the public sector. Mm-hmm. So they, they are provided by the government. And so in a lot of instances, the World African Development Bank research shows that about 50% of the financing of African infrastructure comes from the government budget. But those budgets are under significant pressure, right? I mean, populations have been rising across the continent. At the same time, most of the economies on the continent are dependent on um, not, um, resource extraction and export. And accordingly, their finances go along with the vagaries of commodity prices. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very little um, value addition. And so in terms of creating value, not, not much happens on the continent. And so you can imagine a combination of Increasing cost of services, public services, health, education with your growing population and increasing need for public infrastructure, roads, power and uh, unsustainably uh, dependent on, on, on natural resource extraction and export. So most African governments struggle. The public sector struggles to be able to provide these public goods. Mm-hmm. A significant number of them have turned to borrowing to be able to do that. And, and China has emerged as the, the creditor lender of, of, of choice for most of these, of these governments. And it's understandable because there was an, uh, an economist article the other day saying, DRC is about the size of Western Europe, and it has enough paved roads as Cornwall in the UK. Mm. I mean, and so you can imagine a country that size. And Cornwall is just like a, a small town. Yeah, in the it's UK. like a it's like a little town district or, or whatever. I mean, if the DRC had enough roads as the entire UK, it would still be a, a questionable thing. But now it's not just the entire UK. But I, I like to stress roads because of the, their centrality to the possibility of an of a sustainable modern economy. Here in the US, about seventy three percent of all goods produced and imported into the country transported is transported on roads, not trains, not barges, not ships, roads. That's how important roads are to the American economy, and this is the most industrialized country in the world. Mm. Across the EU, is it ranges from 76% to up to 98% in terms of the dependency on roads for, for, for freight. And yet, across the continent, less than 50% of all the roads on the continent are paved. So you can imagine how difficult it is to be able to build anything 
right? Whether it's even expanding infrastructure, um, agriculture is almost impossible to be able to do that. And uh, one of the arguments that I've made is that it is an excellent point for tech-enabled infrastructure. And I did a, a TEDx talk on this, that over the last decade, maybe two decades, there has been significant advancement in materials engineering and machine learning that we can now create new materials that we can use in road construction that would be significantly cheaper than the current material we use, which is, you know, asphalt, but significantly reduce the price without compromising the quality. And I like to use space as an example. Hmm. Before the arrival of SpaceX, NASA paid about $400 million per trip to the International Space Station with the arrival of SpaceX is down to $60 million. That is the kind of disruption that can happen if we target innovation and technology toward problems and solving those problems. However, there's not a lot of attraction to that for roads in Africa. Nobody's building tech companies to be able to provide cheaper roads in Africa. Mm-hmm. Most of the money is directed towards um, uh, tech enterprises that investors believe can yield the most in terms of dividends. So, And do you think that's a problem of the mindset of LPs and funds coming in with that Silicon Valley mindset of, you know, 10-year fund life cycle, we need to get our 10x returns, which, which for Africa, I mean, it doesn't really make sense. Like B2B cycles are, like you can't compare a B2B cycle in Africa to the U.S. Yeah, right? you like, know, human beings tend to be self-referential. Right. And so we had a, on our podcast, New Think, we had a, a guest, Melissa, mm-hmm. um, from, she invests, uh, in, in India. And she laid out that when Silicon Valley first came to India, they focused on things they were familiar with, right? And so things, they, the Silicon, the Indian versions of companies that they were familiar with and knew. And so you can imagine if external capital comes into Africa, train they really do not know and understand they're going to heal towards what is uh, more familiar to them Mm -hmm. there's that secondly i think there is uh, an understand like everyone goes into tech most people go into tech thinking they might build a unicorn or they might be acquired for millions of dollars and you're playing with other people's money if you're investing, right? And so the fund has to close at a certain point. And so you either acquire it or you go public. Well, there's not a lot of public going public happening in Africa. So you're looking for acquisitions. And so people investing money in Africa are going to look for avenues where it is that they have the best chances of recouping both their investors' money and some sort of return. And so you see most of that clustering around logistics. And uh, fintech, right? Whereas those aren't—I mean, those are important sectors that Africa needs in terms of job creation, but those aren't the primary things that Africa needs. But if the money is driven externally, then it's going to go toward the things that the external actor believe uh, believes is important for them. And so maybe as we begin to have more homegrown capital that is investing then it will be more realistic and begin to target problems that are regional or you know local and not pro- not looking to scale across a continent like a Jumia or yeah. uh, say a flood wave or into switch. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, look, there is something to be said and there is wealth to be created in different fintech plays, different mobile money plays. Absolutely. But I agree with you in that I think 
Western, and it's not just Western, anyone, any VCs outside of Africa coming in, they lack the local context that's needed to kind of see what's needed in the broader ecosystem beyond just fintech plays. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you, you talk a lot about agriculture and like back in Liberia, right. agriculture and ancillary services to the industry is mm-hmm. what can create a lot of jobs. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Like so, why, why do you look at agriculture for Liberia? Absolutely. So the World Bank just released a report on Sierra Leone that showed that about 54 or 58% of the population is engaged in agriculture. Most of this agriculture is uh, small scale, largely subsistence. And so the argument here is you have the least productive sector and productivity is just simply in terms of the outcome from the hours that they're spending, right? The least productive uh, sector of the economy has the largest portion of the the labor force. It means that Sierra Leone is operating below its capacity. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing that's happening in Liberia. So... Twigger Farms out of uh, Kenya. Mm-hmm. I like those guys, and I'm, I'm rooting for them. I, I hope to succeed. They have uh, small-scale farms that they deal with, but recently they put out a call for contract farms. And the descriptions they had were that a contract farm should be no less than 50 acres, should be fenced, should be irrigated, or the proprietor should be willing to put up the money to irrigate, should use you know new approved uh, methods for growing and that they would then connect them with other players like input providers, fertilizers, uh, machines on the, the platform. And, and people were criticizing saying, well, you're ruling out over 90% of the farms in Kenya, right? Who's going to have 50 acres to be able to do this? But I think it's an, it's an excellent opportunity because what happens then is if you have a small farm nearby, where you are doing subsistence activity, a subsistence agriculture, say four acres, and total from farming that four acres every year, you made, I don't know, let's say $350. Well, I then look into join twi- uh, Trigger as a contract farm can lease and offer you $450. So without the backbreaking work that goes into subsistence agriculture, your land becomes more productive because it's a part of something bigger and I can be able to do that. Now you're making more money, but you still have the time to be able to do so. Basically, what we're looking to do with agriculture in Africa is to transition people away from subsistence activity to more productive activity and that consolidate the farms, make them slightly bigger so that we achieve economies of scale. Now, Ordinarily, with a continent that has about 50% of its population engaged in, in agriculture, a significant amount of the tech-enabled businesses or tech investment would go toward that place where a significant amount of both the economy or the labor forces. But when you look across the continent, we're seeing some agriculture, uh, agri-tech businesses, but that's not was receiving the big portion of the money. So that's why I think as we grow our tech space on the continent, there is significant, there's a lot to say for local capital um, trying to solve both local and regional uh, problems, especially in the agricultural value chain. Especially when you look at the issue, which we covered last month of repatriation in in many different countries. Mm -hmm. When, When you talk about how do we create more international VC investing in Africa? Well, 
that's a big that's a big challenge when you look at somewhere like in Ethiopia where it's like if I invest my money and how do I even get my money out right. even if the deal is successful with all the added risk you have on top of that right, that's right. Um, but but if you're local for example if I'm a local VC right. I'm building assets locally my time horizon might be slightly longer and if it's not possible for the fund to close it could it's also possible that we're okay with um getting dividends or it's also possible that a local pension fund or a local uh, insurance company would actually buy my stake but all of that is local so you're creating local value right and 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 eventually that space begins to grow and then some of those companies start to become bigger and bigger but i think a part of that also has to do with how much space the government actually creates for such for these things to happen right Mm -hmm. so it's not simply private money is the public sector creating the enabling environment for this to happen for in terms of the tax incentives to locals for being able to do investment like those and um it helps to make so silicon valley continues to attract people from all over the world right and why because it has established itself as one there's a lot of synergy in silicon valley you're going to find like-minded people and create value but there is the promise that if you create value you're going to be rewarded handsomely for that right and so people come to create value on the continent we have the opposite most of the investment into africa is not targeted at creating value in africa it is about extracting something from africa to create value elsewhere right? and again this is exactly what happens when all of your the capital is externally driven right and so then there's not a lot of uh, you know there's no way that tesla is looking to create ba- um, build batteries in africa right i mean they, they might get cobalt or lithium from mm-hmm. from africa but they're not looking to build the bat- batteries there they're looking to extract that and then build the batteries elsewhere and create value there but if it were a local company that were doing the mining, if it were a local company that was doing that, then it would try to insert itself in global value chains and say, listen, we're going to build the batteries in South Africa. We're going to build the batteries in Angola, and then we're going to ship them. And so we're going to be connected in that way. And then value is created on the continent. So I think there's something to say about financing that is locally driven. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that's kind of what... um in the book Prosperity Paradox, they they mm. talk about where it's like when you want to increase profit margins on an extract an extractive company, you reduce costs, mm. but and and you can reduce profit that way. But the problem with reducing costs is you're, you're reducing jobs and you're reducing Absolutely. you know you're creating more efficiency of the extractive process, right? That's right. And so you know, I mean, I guess that's why when when you look at this next industrial revolution that's going to happen, like tech is is very important to actually give jobs to all the young people that are growing up in somewhere like a Liberia. Hmm. And and the conversation of, well, like when it comes to tech, it only be venture capital investments in those ecosystems. The market size locally doesn't warrant a 10x return on a venture capital investment. Well, and then the ticket sizes tend to be small too. Right. But I think the conversation needs a shift and there can be abundance created from the mindset of, well, web development shops can mm-hmm. be built that are sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, design shops can be built that are sustainable. These platforms like Upwork and these freelance platforms mm-hmm. can create jobs and all that requires is one specific skill, whether it's SEO or development or something that 
we can train young people to do that. 100%. They don't need these billion dollar exits there. Hundred percent. When I was in Liberia and started my started farming, I needed to create a logo for for it. I didn't use. I went online to find uh, you know someone who would design a logo for me, and found this guy in California who was charging. I don't know. It's like two thousand dollars or something like that. And then on the same page where I found him, I found a guy in Vietnam who would do it for like three hundred fifty dollars. Right. Right. Yeah. And so then um, the Vietnamese guy, because then we got to know each other and we talked, and he said, "Well, I get I get work from other designers in the U.S." Where like you give a work to the guy in California who then farms oh, it off <laughs> to, to the to the Vietnamese guy, right? Right, right? and then he's, and he's able to and he's able to leverage that. And so if the guy mm. from Vietnam is providing services to some guy in Liberia, there's really no reason why first you know can find someone in Liberia who does that, but someone in Sierra Leone who will provide that kind of service. So if we can have that, those kinds of platforms, that would be great. Second thing is you know over the last. Uh, couple of days there've been um just a trail of articles about something significant that is happening on the other side of the world so most times when people think of africa they think of the large and growing population on the continent and and most times that's presented as a problem that needs to be solved the corollary to that is there's a demographic crisis happening in europe and in asia Japan is set to lose more than 20% of its workforce. Um, across places like Greece and uh, Lithu- um, Lithuania, I think, a number of European countries is supposed to be up to 35% by 2050. So the less young people you have means very few people are paying into pensions. And, and the crisis you're talking about in this country is just people people getting old. Yes, just people getting living longer and getting old. So there is an opportunity here that, you know, businesses created in, created in Africa or Africans themselves creating companies and businesses there in those countries. So one of the things I've been thinking about on, on this question is, you know, even when we think we think of tech and, 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 and opportunities and possibilities, there are all of these conferences that African leaders attend. There's one going on today, the UK Africa Summit. Mm-hmm. But I think they, they, they usually go in the wrong direction because, again, they're driven by the external actor who's inviting the Africans. It's not driven by the Africans. What, what do I mean? Most of those conferences end up with transactions. We're going to invest $2 billion in Africa. There are very few policy outcomes. Because Africa doesn't come to that conference as Africa. Africa comes as 52 or 53, 54 different countries. And as individual countries, they don't. So, for example, if Africa went to the UK summit as Africa, they would insist on better immigration policies toward Africa, right? right. They would insist on policy outcomes, not simply transactions. So I think when we think we step back and think about the role that tech can play in African enterprise, we should also think about the possibility of Africans in Europe, Africans in Asia, who are creating companies in those places and then coming um, back home either with those skills or creating subsidiaries of those companies mm. in Africa to be able to do that. As long as we see that as an opportunity, then we are beginning to grow that productive space in which value is being created, not just for the Africans, but also for the countries where they're from, you know, so um, from um, their the, the external partners. So I think there's significant promise, and, and I'm really, really hopeful about the future of the continent. So one thing I do want to make sure we touch on before we finish is 
kind of hearing about your experience uh, raising capital for, I believe it was a coffee farm you were looking to raise in Coco. Liberia? Coco. Coco. Sorry, yes. Coco. Um, and I think, you know, it probably speaks to the broader challenge of if you are a uh, startup founder in Liberia and you're traveling all over trying to raise venture capital, I mean, I think, I think your experiences are probably enlightening on some of the uh, misperceptions or challenges that you're going to bump into. Absolutely. I think it's also instructive because, like I said, if, if I were, say, creating a, a tech platform or something like that, I probably would have attracted way more financing than I would mm-hmm. if I were creating a farm, you know, Interesting. that that would em- employ a significant a lot more people um, and with the possibility of actually going up in the value chain. So the two countries next door to Liberia, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, produce at least 60% of all the cocoa in the world that goes into our chocolate. But there are interesting things happening in those countries. One is that the average cocoa tree is productive for about 35 years. And the trees in those countries are between 22 to 23 years. So in another 10 years, regardless of what happens, there's going to be a significant drop in terms of produ- uh, production from those countries. That's one. Two, most of the farms in those countries are farmed by small farmers. They're between four to seven hectares. So most of the farmers have really struggled to be able to make a living off those farms. They, they, they're not consolidated in any ways. And so they've, be- they've become tempted to cut down the trees and plant other crops that, you know, are more profitable. And because those farms are so small, uh, it means that in the labor cost is pretty high. So most of the farmers end up using their kids to work on the farm or other children. And so one of the problems with coffee, cocoa, has been children in the value chain. So all of these problems, I looked at it and thought to myself, Liberia shares a border with Cote d'Ivoire. Before the war, 5% of our GDP came from cocoa. Why not grow cocoa in Liberia and become an alternative, you know, to elsewhere? First, I was going to grow on a 500 acre farm for my MVP. Um, and just to prove because I was trying to use science. So I brought in people from Israel to design the farm so that it was, um, it's called fertigation. It's a combination of irrigation and fertilizers. So we're going to be able to plant significantly more trees per acre than ordinarily is done on, on the continent because it's irrigated. So we're bringing input and they, um, designed a machine that didn't need anybody to run it. It simply collected information, data from the atmosphere, and there's an algorithm that tells the machine how much water or how much fertilizer each crop, each plant needs. So this was science in Liberia with cocoa. So obviously this hadn't been done before. I mean, so this is an incredible opportunity. So we put a lot of money into it, paid for a full feasibility study, a full business plan, everything had the Israeli agronomists and agricultural economists come to Liberia um, to be able to do it. And to be able to fund this, it was about $3.1 million. So we took this and went to every development finance institution you can think about, the private sector, you know, and uh, most times the most pro- progress we made was, well, we this stuff requires like a study to be able to like, oh, don't worry about that. I've already, you know, and I gave them this professionally done study and they're like, yeah, this is really good. But at 3.1 million, it's kind of really, really small because once we've done with due diligence and everything, you know, it's like, you know, a greenfield agricultural project is, you know, so I'm like, well, we actually have a possibility to go up to 5,000 hectares, right? That's over 10,000 acres, but we wanted to be able to demonstrate that this concept could work. Right. And once that demonstration, that's like if we were creating a tech product, this would be our 
minimum viable product, right? With this five, five, and then like we can even reduce that. And we're like, no, 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 no. It's like, okay, then let's double it. You know, then there's a bigger ticket size for you to be able to like, nah, then it becomes too risky, <laughs> right? Um, talk to a German family office that invests in agriculture in Africa and he basically wanted more than 50% of the company, wanted to be able to hire the management of the company, wanted everything to be. So I was like, why don't you just come to Liberia and create your own farm, bro? You know, yeah. instead of, you know, me being like, it was just crazy that like, what I had to give up. And then he wasn't actually providing all of the money. He was going to provide $500,000 and the rest of it was going to be dead. And he was taking away the company. You know? But I want you to imagine that I am, I mean, if you Googled me, you find stuff about me. So I am pretty, I would be better known than the average African start farmer starting a farm. Right. I used to be a cabinet minister in my country, right? And so if I, with all of the networks I'm connected to, with all of the, with the profile that I have, struggle as much, if I spent so much of my own money in creating you know, justification, like a business plan and everything for this. You can imagine what it's like for the person who doesn't share any of the characteristics that I have, how difficult it is for them to be able to do that. And again, like I said, but because the money that is coming into businesses in, in, in Africa, um, that money isn't coming into things like what I'm trying to do is coming into other things. And so it, it becomes a, and then when I talk to say like the Afrexian bank, they, the, one of the things they suggested was why don't you try local banks? Well, you know, I've local banks in Liberia. Yeah, well, I've taken money from local banks before. I remember taking a medium-sized loan that took me more than fifty-six days to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Four um, percent origination and, and administrative fees up front, fourteen percent, um, and you're paying back within eighteen to twenty-four months. There's no way you're going to create an agricultural enterprise with loans on those terms, right? So it's, it's crazy to imagine that you'd be able to get that money from local banks. And so you have now, and, uh, this farm would have employed at least, you know, 75 people from the day we started to work, even when we went into production, right? To be able to, and then there was the possibility of actually starting launching our own, um, local chocolate brand. Right, and then being being able to so that like the local retail market. Well, we were going to try that, but we're also going to try to see if we get it into like a, a Whole Foods or like a Trader Joe's, right? And then because right. it was a really good story, it's African grown, it's African made, and everything. Mm-hmm. But then to be able to see if we could drive our costs down enough to be able to sell it locally. And so now I'm just uh, I have other projects that I'm working on, and hopefully I will be able to raise once those projects become cash positive. The intent now is to borrow against the income on those to be able to launch that project myself, right? Well, and, and, bootstrap yeah. and so I think part of the additional challenge for a startup founder, like someone raising for some, some sort of tech startup in Liberia is one thing that you didn't have to go up against is the local market size right. as one of the reasons why right. they're not going to fund the deal, right? Because right. it's all it's, being taken out versus if you're actually, the entire deal was well, we're going to do this and then sell it into local retail. It's like, well, there's nothing here. Like exactly, exactly. Well, what the, and the, the attractive thing about what we're trying to do is that the market for the product we're creating was totally external, right? right. All of it was going to be sold elsewhere and not, 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 you didn't, you weren't dependent on the Liberian market for this to be viable. And so yeah. it was just pretty, uh, so I think, I think, um, there's something instructive there. I mean, you can imagine that if I wanted to create food, uh, grow food for local consumption, it's like right. nobody's done this stuff before. You're crazy. And I just bring, I, I bring that up from the perspective of just imagining like you're an entrepreneur that's in 
uh, Lesotho or Sierra Leone or Liberia or one of these smaller African countries mm-hmm. that doesn't have a market size like like a Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana, and you're trying to raise capital, and it's like, well, I mean, before you can even convince them to invest in the company, you have to convince them of the market oppor- of like the market size of of the country itself and the GDP. And that's and why so- you know maybe they. Uh, that's why there's so much promise with the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, right. which creates a single sure. market. But there's also caution. In West Africa, we have ECOWAS. We have the Mano River Union that combines Liberia, Cote d'Ivoire, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Mm-hmm. So if you were to produce in Liberia, on paper, you have access to those four markets. So you're on not paper, just... That's, yeah, that's exactly. The... And so this is what, I mean, across... We have eight regional economic communities in Africa. So on paper, Africa is pretty economically integrated. So just mm-hmm. signing this Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement does not necessarily mean that we're going to have a single market and it's going to work. But again, knock on wood, we're pretty hopeful about this. I thought, before, you know, in, in, in having this conversation, I wanted to just talk a little bit about what I said I do at the Center for Global Development, which is talk about China. Yeah. China has been an excellent partner to African countries. So when China's opening up coincided with the expansion of globalization, Right, and so Western capital seeking higher returns went to China, right? And and so first, you know, it was maquiladoras, these factories open on the border between the U.S. and Mexico, you know, and so manufacturing was happening there to be sold here. And then China created, you know, synergies. They had the infrastructure, they had the, the labor force, they had the, the policies. They weren't too harsh with the environmental stuff. So everybody moved to China, and China became the the factory of the world, but that was driven by Western capital. China is doing the exact same thing. is isn't so much in terms of money, but China is exporting its excess capacity in construction. And Africa, with its huge infrastructure needs, it was like a match made in heaven, right? And so China was an excellent partner. And then when African governments and African publics compared China as a partner with the Western partnerships that they've had before, for the first time, people could actually see some sort of tangible benefit coming from the extraction of their natural resources. They could see roads. They could see water uh, filtration plants. They could see um, a lot of football stadiums, right? <laughs> Big hospitals, universities, parliament buildings. So China was building stuff people actually needed. But it's been 20 years now, and I think it's important at, in, at this mark for us to be able to look back on the relationship and celebrate the things that were good about the relationship and then be able to course correct, especially on the things that haven't particularly worked about the relationship. And China, you know, always says, you know, their goal in Africa is win-win. Both Chinese businesses and Chinese government like to use that. More power to them, right, in terms of win-win. But first, think about it. If you're Chinese and you enter most African societies, you enter at a higher social standing than the average African in our society. You come into the African society with a network behind you of public banks or even private banks and people you know. You might be a poor person in China, but your networks in an African country are worth more than, than say, the average African. So if you were to start a business as a Chinese person, you're connected to a value chain that the average African isn't connected to. And if you wanted financing, you find financing that the average African couldn't get. So across the continent, what you're seeing is a reputation of every, the same thing that happened with the European, with the Lebanese, 
with Indian merchants, Chinese merchants are now becoming our space and Africans again are, are just spectators to in terms of creating. So there's that. We cannot continue to have this relationship where every new group of external actors coming on the continent somehow eventually end up dominating the economy in ways that we can't, right? So there's that. The second thing also is most of the money that China lends to African governments, the operative word there is lend, that money has to be paid back. Regardless of what China says, the money has to be paid back. And if it has to be paid back, almost all the time, the government negotiating the loan is not the government that's going to be in power when that loan is repaid. The people will have to repay that and the people need a say. And there's a certain amount of lack of transparency and opacity around the, the, the design of Chinese loans and Chinese engagement with the continent that cannot continue in 2020. There's no way that happens, right? Mm. Most of, I mean, if people are going to be saddled with these loans, they need to be able to know what's in there. And there is a certain amount of responsibility on China. One of the things you would notice when African communities complain about something with the environment, something with the quality of the loans, the Chinese interlocutors usually say to them, talk to your government. And that makes sense. The African government is the one that was elected, is the one whose primary responsibility is to look out for its people. But there is a responsibility on the, the actor coming in too. All right, the U.S. half FCPA. U.S. companies misbehaving in Africa can be sued in U.S. courts, mm-hmm. right? European companies misbehaving in Africa can be sued in, Afri- in, in European courts. I don't know if a Chinese company that goes out of the way in, in, in Africa can be sued in a Chinese court. And since most of the Chinese firms operating in Africa are state-backed firms, are state-owned companies, it kind of creates a difficult situation. So going forward, I would expect, you know, that there would be a significant change in terms of the quality of these agreements and their openness to the public, especially for public debate as China goes forward. Yeah. Because, if, I mean, it's in China's interest, actually, to do this. And why do I say this? Civil society, the political space in Africa, even in undemocratic regimes is highly contested. People are free to speak, right? And so eventually, I don't think the Chinese government and the Chinese businesses want to be um, associated with the negative impact of governments as people turn against the governments or the government in power. I, I think so hopefully uh, um, those things will 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 change in, in terms of, um, you know, how equitable those mm. relationships are, right? Yeah. I mean, I one of the things I like to say is, uh, is upfront is so unequal as it is with Africa's engagement with most people, most countries who come to Africa. The largest bank in the world by assets is the ICBC, one of the four major banks in China. Its total assets are about $4 trillion. The closest Western bank to that, I think, is $2 trillion less. China's total exposure in Africa, we're talking about one Chinese bank here, China's total exposure in terms of debt to Africa is around a hundred billion, right? So China could completely say, you know what? Fair enough. We lost all to Africa and it wouldn't mean anything to Africa, but a hundred billion means a lot to Africa. So there's a really, really unequal about the relationship. So if, if it is, it's not transparent, then it, it, it leans heavily in, in the favor of the more powerful actor. Well, of course. And and I don't think that, at least the deal that I've, I've seen coming from China, I think they're pretty well aware that most of these, most of the debt they're giving out, like, it's not going to be serviced. They're not going to be able to service the debt over time. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like they're just using it as 
diplomatic leverage to forgive the loans and, you know, for certain concessions. Hmm. But at the same time, you know, we, we might sit here and complain about all the debt that these African countries are accumulating. But dude, look at the U.S. debt. We're at what, 21 trillion now? And like, like, and so it's just nonsense everywhere. Understandably. I mean, so one of the things that I talk about when we started the conversation was just the scale of the infrastructure gap. And how else right. are you going to close this? Well, exactly. And so if you have a, to be built, like if it's... you have a partner who's willing to, you know, most of, I mean, you, it's not American money that's coming into African infrastructure because Africa is still seen as a risky place to do business, right? Mm. And so China mm. seems to be the only one that has both the risk appetite and the resources to be able to invest in Africa on the yeah. scale that Africa needs. That's true. That's I, my argument is that those deals can be better, right? right? I mean, in yeah. terms of in terms of being able to do that, and at some point. There needs to be a transition. So when China used, when China was a backwater, undeveloped country, China did the exact same thing. Japan, Japan came to China and built infrastructure in exchange for resources, but then China graduated, right? 2019, China had more unicorns than the U.S. 206 in China, 203 in the U.S., mm. right? In terms of 5G patents, Huawei has about 35% of them. Uh, yeah. chi- like China has about 35% of them. Yeah, no, I, I am not, uh, uh, I'm not keen on what, what, what's happening with Huawei and 5G around the world. Well, but so my, my point is China, I guess the point I was trying to make is that we learned the first part really well, which mm-hmm. is infrastructure for, for minerals, we build infrastructure. At some point, we need to graduate just as China graduated and began to create. And so, like, so for African countries engaged in China, the next step should be in terms of graduating now from just, you know, giving out natural resources, uh, collecting natural resource rents right. or natural resources. So hopefully, um, you know, that's the kind of leadership we'll see going forward, especially in the beginning of a new decade. I hope so. I think yeah, it's going to take leaders kind of stepping up, being tough and saying, you know, no, like we're, we're going to develop and we're going to do this on our own and you need to play fair. I think that's one. And then, um, I think tying, tying the conversation in a nice little bow, bringing it back to what you're talking before with, you know, the, the need for entrepreneurs to really be thinking about the bigger problems like roads. Like I agree. If like it's, it's a very realistic startup nowadays with, with all the technology we have with 3D printers. There's, there's with material science advancements. Like we should have cheaper roads. Oh, absolutely. We should have more efficient. I mean, I'm talking, I, I started talking to these guys at the Pacific, um, Northwest National Laboratory mm-hmm. who had, uh, they had developed, uh, a self healing cement. Right. Exactly. I mean, so you see a crack on the sidewalk and within two hours it heals itself. Um, they were basically working on the, the triggering mechanism at ambient temperature. That's the kind of technology development that we, we should see in Africa that is not happening and that the private sector could, you know, step in. So I've been trying to pitch uh, this year. I'm going to spend my time trying to pitch African governments that they can put up the money for a price challenge and invite materials engineers from around the world to compete on creating a product. When that product is created for the product to be scaled, the African government that put up the money for the price challenge co-owns the IP mm. and is able to export that to its neighbors and make money off it. You know, awesome. Well, we'll know. love to talk further and help you sure, out with that. Sure. But uh, Jude Moore, visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development and co-host of, of the New, New Think, Think. Talk podcast. That's right. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all Please your favorite check podcast us out. directories. It's, it's incredibly entertaining. It's incredibly <laughs> um, innovative. New Think. That's where it's, well, that's where it's happening. 
Yes. Yeah, thanks yes. for having me. Uh, uh, thanks, Judy. Yeah.